1 Samuel 7:12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. This is the word of the Lord. All right, grab your seats. Thanks, Tierra. Welcome, welcome, everybody. So it's fall. Summer is over, and uh, all the kids are back, back in school. You guys back in school. It's awesome. Uh, my wife and I are going to tag team this morning. We have a special morning as we launch off our fall series. So you guys can applaud for Alexis. Yeah. She, she's legit. And so this morning is going to be, uh, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to be sharing our personal stories a little bit and the story of neighbors, uh, which we'll get into why. But as we launch into our value series, we're spending the whole fall establishing and reestablishing our community around why we do what we do here in the city of San Diego and why we do it the particular way that we do it as a local expression of the body of Jesus. So this is a great morning for you to be here to get a very broad introduction to who we are, what we're about, why we do what we do, how we do it, all of those things. So let me pray, and we're going to jump right in. Holy Spirit, come. The church in the West, Jesus, is at a transition point. We all feel it. In fact, many in this room right now, what they are experiencing, they think they're deconstructing, but in actuality, you're just reforming and seeking to, to remove the blocks of false foundations, and you want to build their lives on your kingdom. I pray that they would deconstruct to bedrock, to the resurrection of Jesus, to the power of the Holy Spirit, to the kingdom on earth as in heaven. When we ask, why are we doing this? May we remember that the king came, God as man, died in the flesh for us in our place, resurrected, ascended, and now rules and reigns, and we are his people establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so when we suffer, we suffer as saints, as Jesus suffered for this world. And so fill us and this church, fill the church in the West anew and afresh with the winds of the Holy Spirit, radical recommitment, radical hope, radical joy, that your people across the land would be oases in a desert, people of peace, people of a non-anxious presence for the sake of the lost, our loved ones, our friends, may strangers become family, may enemies become brothers and sisters in this epoch of the church, in this age of the church, at this transition point, may these young souls and old alike, may we together, the church, reestablish our footing in the kingdom of God. We worship you in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, amen. The setting for our text this morning takes place about 3,000 years ago, the text that Tierra read for us. And though it's three millennia ago, it has an eerie amount of parallels to our modern moment sitting here in Adams Elementary in sunny San Diego, 2022. Samuel is the main character of the passage that we read. And Samuel serves as a bit of a bridge character in the overarching or the overarching story arc of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. When Samuel comes on the scene, Israel, the people, were transitioning from being an obscure tribal people tucked away in the margins of the Middle East, formerly enslaved under the Pharaoh's empires, 
they were transitioning now into a legit nation state that would look much more like their surrounding contemporary states. And Samuel was the key figure who was moving Israel from being a theocracy, theo, God, theocracy, ruled by God alone, to a monarchy. They would be ruled by human kings. Rest in peace, Queen E, good luck, Charles, that whole kind of thing. This is what was happening in the midst of Israel at this point in Samuel's life. Now, the line of kings that Samuel would start culminated in the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, crowned and coronated with thorns on a cross, resurrected, ascended, and as I prayed, he is now establishing his rule through you and I as Christians, his church, until his final and established return. Now, Samuel was the last of what the Bible calls the judges. Don't think guy in a black gown with gavel in hand, not that kind of judge. The judges were a long line of prophetic leaders and political leaders. Some of them were just full-on warlord tribal leaders. They were a nasty lot of people. And they were overseeing Israel in one of its most tumultuous times in history. The book of Judges is gnarly. Samuel's society was plagued with violent political upheavals, splintered by a commitment to self-worship, ruled by racial and sexist hierarchies, it was filled with rich and poor disparities. Samuel's society was decaying from the inside out rapidly due to religious and social deconstruction. And Samuel's society was under constant threat from nations abroad. Does that sound familiar to any of us? Does that parallel with anything that we experience in our daily news feeds? Israel had also come under the boot of the Philistines. God was disciplining the people for their unfaithful ways. Their high priest, who was their utmost, highest, most respected religious leader, Eli, he had died. And then his sons who succeeded Eli, they were these selfish, spoiled perverts, honestly. And they had no regard for Israel's laws, traditions, or obedience to Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Now, to add insult to injury, they had lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant was the very symbol of God's divine presence in the middle of the people. And now, this symbol of God's presence was in the hands of unbelieving enemies. It was sacrilege. Yet, despite Israel's desperate state and their decay, God always continued to be merciful to them. Always continued to offer hope always offered to the people a better way forward from the way in which they had been walking. Now, as the Philistines took possession of the Ark of the Covenant, God brought troubles upon the Philistines in the form of, of sores and literal hemorrhoids. It's kind of gross. <laughs> and they were so afflicted by these sores that they gave up the possession of the Ark and they sent it back to the Hebrews. And so as the Hebrews received their most treasured symbol back into safekeeping, the Ark was put in a city called Kiriath-Jerim, where it then would sit idle for over two decades, almost forgotten in the dust. As the ark sat, so too the people grew more complacent, more entitled, more selfish, more idle, and more divided. Now, our passage this morning is actually a very bright light in a very dark time. Samuel's moment here is the beginning of a small renewal movement in the midst of God's people. In the passage that we read, Samuel had begun calling the people to radical, and I mean radical, repentance. 
He was commanding, you must turn from foreign gods. Israel, you must center your whole life on Yahweh, on God's will. Not your will, not the world's will, on Yahweh's will. And obey Torah. Israel, you must come and live once again as the representatives of the true and living God in the midst of and for the sake of broken and lost humanity. And in this scenario, they did at this point in history. The social anxiety, the personal despair had actually not pressed the people into deconstruction and cynicism like in our Western modern moment, but instead the pressures and the anxiety and the overwhelm caused them to repent. They found themselves praying more earnestly. They began turning to Yahweh as their only hope and devoting themselves to him. The Philistines, though, had had control for a long time. They weren't going to go down without a fight. So they all gathered for war. And in this epic kind of scene, Samuel sacrifices a lamb. And after the sacrifice of the lamb, they're preparing to go to war. And God brings thunder and lightning so frightening that the Philistine enemy flees before Israel. And they pursue them all the way to a particular town. And the war is over. Now, I want you guys to all track with this. This is all set up for the morning, the whole morning. In the midst of decades of political upheaval, in the midst of social and spiritual decay, when Israel's emotions were worn out and worn thin, due to those things, the people of God wholeheartedly turned to Yahweh. And when they repented, when they turned to God with everything that they had, then there was deliverance. Then there was a mini revival. Then there was victory. And Samuel marked that moment of victory by taking a large stone and creating a memorial to mark that moment. And he named that stone Ebenezer. Can you all say Ebenezer? Ebenezer. It's actually two Hebrew words. Heben, which means stone, and Edzer. Edzer, helper. Stone of help. And as he set this memorial stone in place, Samuel declared to all the people, this one line, and this one line actually pervades all of the biblical history, and it pervades all of human history. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Thus far, to this point, the Lord has helped us. Quick interesting note, in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, the Hebrews had actually suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of the Philistines in a city called Ebenezer. And so the Ebenezer stone that Samuel set up, it was a declaration of God's faithfulness even after what appeared to be unrecoverable losses. Have you reached that moment yet where it feels just unrecoverable with the mental health, with the hope, with the future, with the politics, with the plague, with the racial tensions and wounds and pain? Have any of us reached that moment where it's like this is not recoverable? The Ebenezer stone was set up in contrast to that. The Ebenezer Stone looked back and it remembered that God was faithful to help all along, but it also was a declaration that God would continue to move on behalf of his obedient people all the way into the future. Now, the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon, he commented on the King James version of this passage that we read, which reads this way. I love the King James. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. <laughs> Very Shakespearean. Hitherto. I don't know why I'm saying it like that. It just sounds better. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. And this is what Spurgeon said. The word hitherto looks backwards, but also points forward. For when a man gets up to a certain mark and writes hitherto, he's not yet at the end. There's still a distance to be traversed. More trials, more joys, more temptations, more triumphs, more prayers, more answers, more toils, 
more strength, more fights, more victories. And then comes sickness, old age, disease, and death. Is it over now? No. There is more yet awakening in Jesus' likeness. Thrones, harps, songs, psalms, white raiment, the face of Jesus, the society of saints, the glory of God, and the fullness of eternity and the infinity of bliss. Here's what I want to call us to this morning as a community of Jesus followers. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Thus far to this point, all this way, and all the way into our future, the Lord has and the Lord will help us. In the midst of political upheaval and racial pain and plague and religious and social decline, unprecedented levels of loneliness and anxiety and depression, the Spirit is moving in the modern church in communities like ours again. And the call for God, the call of God for his people, is for each and every single one of us, even this morning, to let this be an Ebenezer Stone morning where we say, I am 1,000% turning everything that I am over to Jesus. God is literally waiting for us to stop strategizing and to start praying. I know that sounds cliche. He's waiting for us to stop looking at the things of the world to heal us and to save us and to look to his power and his kingdom alone. And he wants to, he wants to revive you personally this morning for the sake of our lost city. So Lex and I thought that it would just be a blessing to you. So many new people that are part of this community as our church progresses through the fall. We thought it would just bless you and also benefit us all together as a family to set up a sort of Ebenezer Stone this morning. This is an Ebenezer Stone morning. And so just as Samuel 3,000 years ago declared, thus far the Lord has helped us, we just want to briefly bring everybody that's part of this community up to speed on a little bit of our personal story and the story of neighbors and how our Father has helped us as he's been weaving together all of these multitudes of stories. And this morning isn't just an Ebenezer Stone for our church together as a family it's for all of us. It's for you this morning, right down to every circumstance and detail in our personal lives. Listen, have the past few years been a little bit difficult? Yes. <laughs> are you struggling this morning with your mental health? Absolutely, you are. Are, there, are the political debates kind of wearing you thin? Yes, very, very, very much so. Has global plague completely wrecked our sense of control, like a house of cards being blown down in a hurricane? Absolutely. Is the possibility of economic collapse concerning? It is for me. Are the looming threats of war constantly coming across our news feeds terrifying? Yes, 100%. And guess what? Here you and I sit this morning, air in our lungs, most likely food in our bellies, at the very least a donut and some decent coffee from us. And the Lord has helped you this far, friend. You have been helped this far. And he will be there to help you all the way to the end. Do not give up. God works through everything in our lives. And everything he does is to break us and bring us into dependence on him and into greater intimacy with him. And so the fear, the anxiety, the struggle, the doubt, the deconstruction, the upheaval, whatever it may be, God is working in that to release our vice grip from our own personal pseudo control of the universe He's turning us from the futility of the world, and he is inviting us to embody his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so today, this room is a collection of stories of the faithfulness of God who has helped us to this moment. Every single one of us can say without a shadow of a doubt, no matter where we find ourselves this morning, that hitherto, to this point, God has helped me. 
And I'm telling you, God has bent the universe circumstantially to bring you to this gathering this morning to intertwine all of these incredible stories together. We are a pile of Ebenezer stones creating an altar for God's presence to come and dwell upon. And so as we tell parts of our story and neighbors thus far, we're doing so to look back to say, whoa, wow, thus far God has helped us. But also to intertwine all of our stories into the future of this church. You today, right there, even if this is your very first time being here, you today are as much a part of this community as those who have been part of it from the very beginning. So I just want to welcome you. So this church plant for me really began over 20 years ago. Um, before Dan and I were even married. Um, for me personally, I attended a private Christian school in elementary school, junior high, high school. And when I was 13, um, this missionary from YWAM came and spoke at one of our chapels. And at the end of his teaching, he invited us as students to come forward if we sensed like we had this calling on our lives. And so I was really overwhelmed. I was super nervous, but I went forward and um, I bowed down at the altar and um, there was really something powerful in that moment as the Spirit stirred my heart to go forward and to bow down. And so when I bowed down, the missionary came up to me, and he placed his hand on my shoulder. And rather than praying just some generic prayer of calling over my life, he actually proceeded to read from Jeremiah 1, verses 4 through 9. And those verses say, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nation. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So this was really the first time for me that I had ever experienced anything like listening prayer. And so I didn't fully understand what was going on, but what I did recognize was, as I was weeping, was that the Holy Spirit was bearing witness with my spirit. And so fast forward to where I'm at today, I feel like I am just beginning to see the reality of that prayer that was prayed over me over two decades ago. And though I don't think it was some grand prophecy that I'm going to be a ruler over nations and I'm going to rule kingdoms, that kind of thing, I do believe that the Spirit deposited something in me. And that deposit is in part taking shape through this church plant. Planting and leading this church is a mark of God's faithfulness and his help and honestly his slow and steady work in my own life. When Dan, I, when Dan and I got married, he knew exactly what he wanted he knew exactly where he was going. Actually, the first time we got married, or first time we went on our first date, we were going to McDonald's. It was super I'm fancy. I'm so classy, McDonald's. Yeah, super fancy. And we're you driving. You can do it, fellas. You can do it. Yeah, just take her to McDonald's. I mean, did it for me. So we're driving to McDonald's. We stop at the stop sign, literally our first date. And Dan says, I just want you to know that I've been praying for you, and my intent is to marry you. And if that's, yeah. Get it. <laughs> And he's like, if that's not where you're at, like, I totally understand, but I want you to know what my intentions are with you. So I was like, okay, all right. 
So even as a baby Christian, um, Dan knew leadership and starting things were going to be part and parcel for our calling together. And I was all in in both our marriage and in our calling, but for me, it's been a longer journey. Dan tends to be this force of nature, and I very much by contrast am a cautious person. I'm slow moving. And so this calling for me really started, has really started to emerge in the last five-ish or so years after 21 years of marriage and from really leading more from behind. And it's beginning to bring forth these buds in the soils of prayer and um, obscurity and obedience. So the reason why I share that little story and the reason why I believe it is important for all of you to know my personal story is because every single one of us in this room have had deposits that the Lord has made in our life. And he will be faithful to bring those seeds to life, to bring them to bear. And it may take decades. It may happen tomorrow, but he will do the work. And from where we now find ourselves culturally and after all that's happened in the recent years, I believe that this church and the church globally has that Jeremiah 1 prophecy over them. We are here for such a time as this. Every single one of us have been called as Christians. Our mouths have been touched by the anointed and risen and crucified hands of Jesus. And each one of us have been anointed to build and to plant in our spheres of influence. The Spirit has brought each of us together in this community and he has helped us thus far. And he will continue to usher in his kingdom on earth through us together. And so therefore, yours and my presence matters. For Dan and I, our journey, like every single human in this room, has been up and down and in between and wild and high highs and low lows. And early in our marriage, Dan left the construction world and he became a youth pastor. <clears throat> and we had all three of our kids by the time I was 24. I stayed at home and I started learning. As I stayed at home, Dan started learning the ropes of church life and leadership. But we always knew that we were going to be leaving our hometown in Idaho to do some sort of kingdom work. We almost moved to Brajov, Romania um, to plant churches in the Transylvanian mountains. Legit. <laughs> we considered Boston and Chicago to be part of this upstart, um, upstart church planning network. But as God closed and opened doors, we just it solidified our desire to obey him and to follow him. And so toward the end of our days in San Diego, or excuse me, in Idaho, we didn't know where we were called to, but we just sensed like we're supposed to take a step of faith. And so we decided, well, let's just sell our house and see what happens and trust that the spirit would guide us from there. And that process eventually landed us in Seattle where we would spend a little more than a decade replanting a church community there. And Seattle was as wild as some of the recent podcasts have described. Um, but it was also just really beautiful. We were young and we were part of an incredible network of church planters and leaders. And really, we were being so shaped in the deepest places of our souls. Those years were really powerfully formative for Dan and I in our faith and really in our love for the local church. They were without question terribly painful and incredibly beautiful as anything worthwhile doing is. And so in 2014, Dan began seminary at Western Seminary, and he met Evan Wickham. And through a series of conversations, we began to realize that our years in Seattle were coming to an end. And we were being called to help the Wickhams plant Park Hill Church. And so in 2017, after 
a year of praying with our elders in Seattle and our church community. That church in Seattle sent our family. They blessed us and they sent our family to go help plant more churches down here in San Diego. Yeah, so, you know, it was after about a year uh, at Park Hill, Park Hill just blew up. It was insane. It was so fast. And so in the midst of rapid growth, uh, the leadership approached Alexis and I and said, hey, what do you guys think about planting early? <laughs> and that, that catalyzed a lot of prayer for us. The vision had always been to plant multiple churches and plant more churches. In fact, our church, Weston isn't here today, is hopefully prayerfully planting our first church this Easter, which is super cool. So the vision has always been to multiply churches. So after months of really some deep wrestling and a lot of prayer, both Alexis and I were reminded that this calling, this deposit, We'd always walked with it. We'd always walked by this intense level of, like, high-risk faith. We knew we were both pastors. We knew we wanted to plant. We knew that folks would want to plant with us. And so we confirmed it and said, yes, we're going to plant out of Park Hill Church. Here we go. And I remember very distinctly after that decision was made, I was laying in my bed. It was, like, probably one of those 4.30 in the morning moments. And I'm considering this third church plant initiative. It would technically be, like, our third senior post leadership role. And I need you guys to understand something at this point in my life. Um, I was in my early, early 40s, and I had, I had nearly two decades of church planting experience in my life. I'd been part of a network of church planters that had skyrocketed to international levels very quickly. Some of those guys kind of accidentally wrote the handbook on the modern church planting movements that we have in practice today. And so being part of that, I had utilized almost every strategy that you can imagine in planting in the entrepreneurial world. I had read hundreds, maybe thousands of pages on leadership and church planting books. I'd been studying cultural shifts and social patterning and pop trends very, very intensely so that I could communicate the gospel in a fresh and modern way. And honestly, as I was laying there at 5 o'clock in the morning thinking about a church plant, I was exhausted. I, I was just, I felt like I don't know if you've ever felt so tired that it feels like there's a weight on your body and you're just, I was just like, I can't move as I was thinking about all of this. I was just worn out trying to, trying to figure out what would work. It was like, you know, church planting just felt like trying to figure out the combination. You're sitting at a bank vault and you're just guessing what the church plant combination is so you can open up to the gold. And I just, I, I, was, I, I did not want to do that anymore. So I lay there and I just began to pray. And, and as, as I was praying... This is what came to me. All right, Lord, we're committed. We are leaders. We are gifted. We are, we are called to do this. We're going to plant another church. And so if I distill this down to my simplest desires, strategies out the window, trying to figure out the lock on the vault out the window, all the leadership books out the window, what, what kind of church are we going to plant? What do we want to do? And this is what came to my mind. I would love to plant a church that loves Jesus, like radically just Christians that are bizarre in the eyes of the world because they love Jesus so much and actually loves their neighbors, like literally their neighbors, know them by name, have their neighbors in their home, love their neighbors. Honestly, Jesus, if I could plant a church that was my neighbor's church, I would be so happy. And the little baby was named. I got out of bed and I was like, we're planting neighbor's church. It, Later, was, it was a 430 in the morning because I remember it was like 6 a.m. and you woke me up and you said... Oh, I think it's Neighbor's Church. God. I was like, yeah. okay. There it is. First thing in the morning. <laughs> neighbor's Church. And it was only a few weeks later that I actually wrote in my journal. I was asking, Lord, what is Neighbor's Church? And he said, it is, a, it is an expression of my friendship with you. 
very counterintuitive. And so, yeah, so in March of 2019 at Park Hill Church, we put out the word that we were going to be planting a church and anyone who wanted to join us could come pray with us. And most of those 20 or so people who came alongside us are sitting in this room today. They're part of this community. And it's really incredible and powerful because there was this depth of care and compassion and ministry for one another that really took, like, shaped what our expression of the local church was going to be. Yeah. For those of you in the room, (laughs) those early prayer gatherings were so powerful. I mean, there was so much crying. It, it was this gathering of people and leaders that had been in the church for some time, and there was there was deep, deep healing happening. There was a quiet. It, I look back on those days like the manger scene of Jesus, just this baby in the quiet and and humans crying out to God, and this new hope was being born. And we together, that small group of us, we were discovering this kind of counterintuitive way in which God was going to plant Neighbors Church. Now, again, in the past, and this is what I'd been trained in my whole life, church plants, you are trained to birth church plants by momentum and catalytic leadership and tons of energy, and you've got to create movement. And once movement's going, create momentum and don't lose momentum. If you lose momentum, you'll lose the church plant. And all of that stuff is awesome for 25-year-olds that are just getting started. That's how churches have to still be planted. I think launching churches with a 1,000 people and lights and smoke and, and bouncy houses and burger taco stands and whatever you can bring in to get people to come to church, amazing. That's just not what the Spirit was going to do in us. It just wasn't. It's not better. It's not wrong. It's not right. It just wasn't what was happening. So about midway through 2019, we're having this prayer night at Bethel Seminary. And this was one of those big prayer nights that church planters do where you're design, they're designed to share the vision and the mission of the church. This is where the church planter gets up and he calls everybody to the mission. Again, historically, these types of nights are designed to get everybody excited, to create tons of movement, to create tons of energy. And we're going to go change the absolute world. And this is what the Spirit did that night instead. I walk up in front of this gathering, probably 50 people there that night. And I just said, honestly, this came to me in the moment. I know this sounds crazy that we've based all of our values on something that came to me when I hit the whiteboard, but this is what happened. I walked up and I said, good evening, folks. Welcome to Neighbors Church. We're going to plant this church with three values at our core. And I turned around and I wrote simplicity, stillness, and spirit. That was it. That's literally what came to me in the moment. And we're going to be unpacking those values for the rest of the fall, simplicity, stillness, and spirit. Suffice it to say, even as I was writing it on the board, I was like, this is not going to create momentum. (laughs) This is not going to create energy in the room. And yet what was amazing, what was amazing is I watched those 50 people. And when I said simplicity, I saw them all go, and when I said stillness, everybody went, hmm. And when I said spirit, everybody went, oh. I actually had a church planting coach, an older fellow, tell me later on who was still very old school in the church planting world. He's like, Dan, look, listen, I've read your values. You're going to create a group of hippies that just sit around and ponder their navels, and you're never going to get the church off the ground with those values. Yet, 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 hitherto, the Lord was helping us. The Lord was helping us. Now, listen, the Spirit actually gave us those values, not because I'm some wise prophet. He just knew how to care for his people to shape our community through what has been one of the most chaotic times in American history. Yeah, we officially launched Neighbors Church on the campus of SDSU October 6th, 2019, with simplicity driving every decision. 
And so much as it is this morning, we gathered around songs, the scriptures, the bread and cup, and prayer for one another. And so from the beginning, this value of simplicity would really bring comfort and peace in the most, um, just like the weirdest of circumstances. Right before we launched, Dan actually severely shattered his nose in a surfing accident. And he had yeah, undergone, bro. yeah, he had undergone like complete reconstructive surgery and both of his eyes were blacked out. And so in our very first gatherings, I'm sure some of you remember, Dan had like a cast on his nose, splints up his nose. He looked so great, best I've ever seen him. But it was all okay. It was okay because really we were simple and we were just a group of people coming together for Jesus' glory and the good of San Diego. And so it didn't have to be flashy or a well-oiled machine. And it was broken, like literally in Dan's case, but it was beautiful and simple and good. And the simplicity of the scriptures, the simplicity of God's people gathering together, the simplicity of singing songs and taking the bread and the wine had to be enough. And none of us, like literally none of us, could have imagined how this commitment to simplicity was going to help us navigate plague and political upheaval and longstanding racial wounds. And so things were just getting rolling when Dan got an email in early March of 2020 about this strange virus that, needed, that we needed to be aware of. And they were telling us that we couldn't gather on the campus of SDSU anymore. Yeah, I literally remember reading the email and thinking to myself, hmm. Well, that's got to be a really strong flu. That's weird. Well, then we'll just take a couple Sundays off and it'll be fine. Uh, obviously not realizing that for the next seven months, we would not be able to gather as a community. And nobody trained you in seminary how to plant a church in the middle of global plague and quarantine. Nobody, nobody, nobody brought that up. Lex and I talk about writing our church planting book for up and coming leaders. And there's a chapter on how to plant a church in the middle of a global plague. And it's just one word. Don't. Don't. <laughs> it was it was brutal. We went to Zoom because we were still a very small community. And actually, the first couple months, I was blown away. There was like 100, 150 people Zooming in from all around the nation. I was like, it's a breakthrough moment. God, you've done it. This is amazing. But seven months into Zoom, by the time we started hitting June, July, there's like 10 logins on Sunday morning. And I was just like, this is over. This is over. My buddies were starting to shut down their church plants. There were a lot of church plants that quarantine took out. Yet simplicity was driving us. We found ourselves saying, keep it simple, keep resting. And then our second value of stillness, literally quarantine-forced, physical, embodied stillness. There was no rushing. There was no momentum. There was quarantine. That was it. And what was amazing was that little handful of people and then a handful more and a handful more through the days on Zoom, as we were forced into literal embodied stillness, continued to coalesce. Our story was being shaped by this literally forced embodied stillness, which brings us to today in this fall series. Simplicity is the filter through which we make all of our decisions, and much more on that next week. We've learned stillness, literally forced into it over these years, and stillness we have discovered is probably the most potent of kingdom activities. But now we believe truly through this fall, we bold are convinced the Holy Spirit, our third value, he wants to move. Simplicity guides our decisions and stillness is our foundation. But we believe our third value, the power of the Holy Spirit upon his people, I believe we're going to come into the most vibrant and exciting season of Neighbors Church thus far, hitherto in our moments. Understand something as we set up the fall series. Simplicity is not the absence of complexity and difficulty. <laughs> 
And simplicity is certainly not shorthand for not doing any hard work as Christians. And stillness is not the absence of activity. It is intensely focused activity. So by God's grace, we have experienced the power of living by those first two values. And what we've discovered is that they actually prepare a house for the presence of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit to dwell in. So from simplicity and stillness, the Spirit can truly be heard through the scriptures and we can move in his literal power into the world. That's the primary emphasis through the fall. We're going to do a deep, uh, well, we'll do a 100,000-foot overview of a theology of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about practicing presence, evangelism, multiplication, church planting, hoorah, momentum, here we go, mission, movement, because the Holy Spirit wants to take us from simplicity and stillness into kingdom activity in the world. Yeah, so really, I mean, that's it in terms of Neighbors Church and like the 100,000-foot uh, overview of our story and thus far, and truly, um, in every single way imaginable, the Lord has helped us, and he's going to continue to do so. Just as we turn here and we go into communion, I actually want to invite you all into this story. And you're going to hear over and over, you've already heard it this morning through the fall, that your presence matters. Without you, we cannot be us collectively. You are part of the faithful and ongoing story of God through neighbors. And so your presence matters here this morning. Your presence matters weekly at our Sunday gatherings. We need you. We need your presence for ministry and for prayer and for care for one another. Your presence matters in setting up a welcoming and hospitable and caring space for both singles and families. Your presence matters during community during the week. And so we believe our Father is really setting up a memorial um, for his glory in us as a church. This Ebenezer stone, as Dan talked about, for the city of San Diego. And we want that stone to declare us as a people. We want to declare his faithful help. And we want people to know that that help is available to anyone who comes to Jesus with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we're really grateful to be able to just share our stories. I know some of you have wondered, like, who are you guys? What is this church plant? That kind of thing. So it's been an honor to be able to share the history of Neighbors and give you guys some grounding for who we are. And we can't wait to see what think, the Spirit does through the I think the it's year. important, too. It's not just us. There's a team for the, for the OGs. Like, you know who you are. you got to meet the people of this church. This, we legitimately are a community of people that God has brought together. And so it's amazing. Yeah, and so we're really praying that this year for Neighbors would be a year of deliverance and victory. Let's stand and pray. Jesus, it's an honor to walk with you. It's an honor to be your loved children brought into the family of God, adopted in. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have access to you. You are not a removed and distant God. You are with us. You have been faithful in the past. You are faithful today, and you will be faithful in the, the future. This morning, Jesus, we just want to take a moment and acknowledge your faithful hand in our lives individually. Just as you're standing there, I want to encourage you to think back, look back over your life. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would show us the ways that you've been faithful, the moment that you carried us, 
the way you sustained us, the way you provided for us, the relationships you've mended. Consider with just a moment the ways God has been faithful to you in the past. Jesus, each one of us have been given these deposits, these moments where you have spoken, you have called us, and sometimes it's easy to get distracted and to lose sight, or maybe life and circumstances kind of removes it from view. Maybe this morning there's a deposit happening in someone's soul. Remind us of those things, Holy Spirit, that you have put in us the way we are to bring your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And just all together, I want to encourage you just to put your hands out, your palms up, just in a posture of receiving, if you're comfortable with that. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd come, that you would anoint each of us. That you'd take these hands and you'd use them for kingdom building, for planting. That you would touch our mouths, that your word would be on our tongue. Anoint every person in this room. And I do pray, I do think very specifically, there are people in this room that are called to plant churches specifically. I pray for your anointing upon them. I pray, Jesus, that they would yield to you and trust in your slow and steady work. I pray for those who feel called to use their talents, their abilities, their creativity to bring kingdom, your kingdom to this earth. I pray you'd bless the work of their hands. Establish the work of your hand, their hands. May your favor be upon them. For those that you have literally given mouths to speak and proclaim in front of people, whether that be in the workplace, it be in classrooms, it be from a stage, whatever, Lord, I pray that your anointing would be upon them. For those that you are sending not just in the states, but outside the states, into the, unto the nations. Father, I pray that they'd be your feet, that they'd go, that they'd say, send me, that they wouldn't be fearful. Each one of us, Lord, accountant, barista, school teacher, nurse, mom, single, married, black, white, each one of us have been called according to your purposes. We are your workmanship. We pray that you would work through us, Jesus, that we would continue this story that you have started. Thank you that we are part of your story. We've been brought in. Send us today, Jesus.